Please take up your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation. We are uh, continuing to look at these these seven messages to the churches um, in Asia Minor and modern day Turkey. And today we come to Jesus message to the church in Pergamum. As we're making our way through these seven messages, you may you may ask yourself, where will we find fairly ARP church in these seven messages? And the truth is that while each of these messages was written to a specific church dealing with specific issues, you'll find a little bit of each of these churches in every church today, including this one. You'll find faithfulness within the church. You will find uh, temptation to put doctrine over love. You will find temptation to compromise or to, with the culture around us or to tolerate that compromise in the name of love. You may be tempted to forget the glory of your salvation or you may be tempted to think that we have arrived or you have arrived when, when you still have a long way to go. And so as we go through these seven messages, use these seven messages to search your heart and to see where you are called to repent and to turn back. So read with me to the, the letter to the church in Pergamum, beginning in Revelation 2, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Let us pray. To the great and glorious God above, to the God who proclaims truth and who knows his children, who knows his church, we ask that the truth that is proclaimed today change our lives, change our hearts. Show us where we are to repent and remind us of the hope that awaits. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. See, as we continue along that road in Asia Minor, in, in modern day Turkey, we, we find ourselves today about 60 miles north of Smyrna and, and inland from the shore. Pergamum was much like the other cities that we have already looked at and will continue to look at, and that they had multiple temples to multiple deities within uh, the city, as well as temples to emperors who were viewed to be divine. Pergamum was known as the home of parchment. Uh, Within several decades of, uh, of this letter being written, Egypt had placed an embargo on the export of papyrus, which was the which was the uh, majority uh, writing uh, media, and so some very smart men in Pergamum figured out that you could uh, um, 
treat animal hides in such a way that they would hold the ink. And so they invented parchment. Uh, initially, it was came in the form of scrolls as they were sewn together. But eventually, as the scriptures became uh, more prominent and as other writing became more prominent, the parchment was found in the form of a codex or what we know as a modern day book. Secondly, the, the main temple in Pergamum had a large altar to Zeus that looked very much like a throne and, and may come in, as we'll see in a few minutes, to the imagery that Jesus uses as they talked, as he talks to the church in Pergamum. And Pergamum was also known as the center of medical knowledge of the day. In fact, the scholar Galen, who was considered the father of modern medicine, studied in Pergamum. And so it is in this setting with the with the advances in technology, with the pagan worship that goes on, it is in this setting that Jesus planted his church in Pergamum and called them to minister and to be his witness. And as we consider his evaluation and his call to the church of Pergamum, we will see that even the faithful church can be tempted by cultural weariness. Jesus opens his letter by, by with, those, with those words of comfort once again, those words that that I know about the church, but what he knows about this church, and we'll look to see his faithfulness, but the first thing that he knows about this church is where they are. They are where Satan lives and where Satan has his throne. We oftentimes forget that God doesn't only omnisciently and intimately know his church, but he knows the community in which that church has been placed. He he knows that he knows the, the people that are in the community. He knows the economic, the political, the societal pressures that exist within a community where he plants his church. He even knows the level of acceptance for his gospel, for his law that exists within a community. And with all of that omniscient knowledge of the community, Jesus takes that knowledge and he plants a church and he equips that church to minister well within that community that he knows about. Let that sink in for just a moment. It is no mistake that this church, fairly associate reformed Presbyterian church, is exactly where it is because this is where God says these people in this church can minister well. And that ministry goes beyond, if I may be humorous for a moment, that ministry goes beyond providing parking 10 days throughout the year. That God knows the community around us. He knows each and every one of us in this church. And he says, you are planted here, gifted here for the specific purpose of ministering in this moment, in this place, in this time. This church is uniquely strengthened and situated to bring God glory in service to God and in service to Fairley and Lewisburg and Roncevert and the extending areas. So Jesus knows exactly where the church in Pergamum is, and he knows that it is a place where Satan lives and has his throne. We have seen already as we looked at uh, last week, as we looked at the church in Smyrna, that that much of what the church goes through, even though it manifests itself in physical and in human ways, is directed by Satan. But more than that, we see a picture that will be filled out for us even more as we move through the book of Revelation is that, that Satan seeks to counterfeit the things of God. God, we will see in, in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5, sovereignly sits upon a throne 
and rules over all creation, and yet Satan seeks to establish his own throne upon the earth. Satan seeks to counterfeit what it is that God does. And it is in this context of of Satan-driven persecution, in this context of, of Satan seeking to counterfeit the glory of God, that, that Jesus says, you have been faithful, even unto the point of watching your brother Antipas die for his faithfulness. This, this faithfulness is seen in, in, in the, the church in Pergamum remaining true to Jesus' name. They, they held on desperately to Jesus' name is what that word remain true, is, uh, remain true means. And to remain true or to hold on to Jesus' name means that everything that Jesus is, everything that Jesus does, everything that Jesus calls you to because of who he is, what he has done, you have held on to that. We'll see in a few moments that, that, that Pergamum is a church that that the church likely is a city that the church had likely felt separation from because of their holding on to the truth. And yet even in the face of persecution, even in the face of being ostracized, they refused to let go of the glories of the gospel. We also see their faithfulness in the fact that they did not renounce their faith in Jesus, even when they saw Antipas die. The temptation is for the church in Pergamum, the temptation for the church in the first several centuries of its existence. The temptation for the church now is to look at the things of God and the things of the world and reject the things of God. To reject his law, to turn their back on his calling for them, to turn their back on their pursuit of holiness and their faithfulness is seen not only in holding strong to Jesus name but also in refusing to turn their back on what Jesus had called them to do. The Christians in Pergamum were faithful unto death. We talked a little bit in Sunday school today about Peter there after Jesus had been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's standing there warming his hands by the fire and the little girl asks him, aren't you one of Jesus's followers? And in that moment, Jesus had to make a decision. Does he does he go through on his promise to die with Jesus? Or does he deny Jesus? And we all know what what Peter ended up doing as he denied Jesus three times. Thanks be to God. He was restored. Thanks be to God that that Satan was not allowed to steal Peter's faith from him. But what do we do in that moment? How do we act in that moment when we are confronted with recant or die? Oftentimes we worry about that, but we we really don't need to worry about it as much as we think we do. Because Jesus tells his disciples in Luke chapter 12, verse 11 and 12, he said, when you are brought before synagogues and rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you would say. You know, likely my generation and and maybe my kids' generation, I I don't know, but likely these two generations will not have to face that question. But when we are called to be faithful where God has placed us, 
we can rest in the knowledge that the Holy Spirit will give us the words to say, will give us the actions to take so that we can remain faithful to him so that so that when that friend or that family member comes to you and says, why do you believe what you believe? It is so hateful. It is so unloving. It is so intolerant. You can be like Nehemiah and, and fire off that quick prayer and, the whole, and know that God through the Holy Spirit will give you the words to answer that person in that moment, will give you the strength to remain faithful and to remain true to the name and to the work of Jesus Christ. So we see that Jesus commends the church in Pergamum for their faithfulness. But while the church is faithful, the church can also be tempted by weariness. Jesus shifts after commending them to their for their faithfulness. He shifts to a, a few things that he has against them. Now, he doesn't have a lot of things against them, but they are important things. We should not be fooled by that word few. Ah, it's just a couple little things. No, it's a couple big things. And they center around the story of Balaam and Balak. Balak. Balaam, we, we have his story in Numbers chapters 22 through 25 and also in Numbers chapter 31. And I'll give you the, the Cliff Notes version of it right now. Balaam was a prophet and, and apparently a true prophet because he heard and spoke for God. But he had decided that uh, he was going to sell his prophecies, his blessings and his curses to the highest bidder. And at the time, Balak, a king of Moab, was the highest bidder. He had paid Balaam to come and to curse the Israelites. On his way to the field of battle where he was going to curse the Israelites, he is confronted by an angel with a sword who speaks on behalf of God and says, do not curse, bless the Israelites. So he goes and he stands on the mountain above the battlefield and he blesses the Israelites. And of course, Balak's upset. He said, I paid you good money for a curse. Balaam says, well, I can't say anything God doesn't tell me to say, but give me another shot. He goes up on the mountain again and he blesses the Israelites. This happens two more times for a total of three times that, that Balak is really upset with Balaam. And then in the next chapter, it shifts to God judging the Israelites because they have intermarried with the Moabites and begun to worship their gods. We learn later on in Numbers 31 that the reason that happened is because after Balaam could, no, could not curse the Israelites, he went to Balak and he said, let me teach you how to get them to curse themselves. Allow them to intermarry with the Moabite women and they will then after a time commit the sexual immoralities and the compromises with idolatry that will bring God's curse upon them. And we learn that in the context of Balaam falling to the sword as he is finally judged for his advice to Balak in order to bring God's curse upon the Israelites. And that's the context that, that Jesus comes to the church of Pergamum in. He says, you have done the thing of Balaam. You have followed the way of Balaam in, in as he says, literally there, eating food sacrificed to idols and in committing sexual immorality. You know, today in our cultural context, we are, we are you and I are really unaware of how much pagan worship influenced absolutely everything in the culture in Pergamum. Now, if you went to the market to buy meat, that meat is there after having already been sacrificed to an idol. 
Now, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 that as long as your conscience and, and the conscience of your brother and sister are okay with that, buy meat and eat it, and buy meat in the marketplace and take it home and eat it. It's a, it's a matter of conscience. It's not a matter of sin. But we can go on even deeper there with the idea of food in, the, in, the, in this cultural setting. Any work that you would done to go buy your food would have, would have come through a guild that worshipped a patron deity. And in order to be a member of that guild and to get work, you would have to worship that deity as well. Social gatherings were often done in rooms rented from the local temple and the price of admission into the local temple was a, a small dab of incense or some type of offering to that deity to be able to enter. Parades and citywide festivals would often be dedicated to the worship of the deities that supposedly ruled on behalf of the city. Think about it today. If you walked up to Kroger and, and before you walked in to buy your groceries, they said, oh, by the way, who do you worship? You said, well, I worship Jesus. Jesus is Lord. They said, sorry, you can't come in. What if you showed up at your place of work and, and, and the person greets you at the door or at the time clock and said, by the way, by the way, by the way, who do you worship? I worship Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Don't bother coming back. What if you wanted to gather with friends and fellowship with friends and, and you got to the meeting hall where the party was going to happen? They said, by the way, who do you worship? And you said, Jesus, Jesus is Lord. Sorry, you can't fellowship with your friends today. You can do that for a little while. You can bear up under that ostracizing. You can bear up under that rejection for a time. But at some point, you're going to get weary of that. It's going to be hard being separated from families. It's going to be hard learning how to farm and raise your own food. It's going to be hard being separated from friends and, and separated from your work. And at some point, you are going to be tempted by the weariness of that difficulty. You're going to be tempted to, to let go of the truths of the gospel. You're going to be tempted to turn your back on your faithfulness to God. And, and Jesus said, just like Balaam taught Balak and just like the Nicolaitans teach, you, some of you have turned your back on the truths of the gospel. And as all idolatry does, as, as scripture points out from Genesis to Revelation, that pursuing a false worship, compromising God's law, which God calls idolatry, ultimately leads to sexual immorality. Now, sexual immorality is a far more shocking word than we would believe. I grew up with it. Flee from sexual immorality, sexual immorality, sexual immorality over and over and over again. It's almost it's one of those words that you just have heard so often that it's almost lost its power, its punch. The word, which is the word we get our word pornography from, literally means to prostitute yourself in order to satisfy lusts and desires. Whether it's the primitive practice of worshiping man-made images or the more contemporary practice of worshiping personal autonomy, you end up 
in the midst of whoring yourself out in order to satisfy desires that are contrary to God's law. And if we're honest with ourselves, we don't it, we, we realize that this is not literal, doesn't have to literally be sexual in nature. You can prostitute yourself out to food or alcohol or drugs if you're trying to avoid bad feelings that come with this life. You can sell yourself to the lowest bidder in a bad marriage or living arrangement because you worship relationships rather than God. You can sell yourself to bad business practices if your God is the almighty dollar. The truth is, brothers and sisters, you will either sell out to God's grace and the pursuit of holiness and the pursuit of faithfulness, or you will sell yourself to the lowest bidder in pursuit of turning your back on God's law. For the Christians in Pergamum, they had so sold out, some of them had so sold out to God's grace and holiness that they had become socially separated from their family and their friends and their livelihood. The longer they went in that separation, the harder it is and the more the temptation grows to to, to compromise just a little bit to taste the camaraderie and the connection that we used to have. But brothers and sisters, a, a, a little compromise here turns into a little more compromise there. And you go from meeting your friends at the local temple for a a nice dinner and a quiet evening to justifying the act of visiting the temple prostitute because, well, she needs Jesus, doesn't she? And Jesus takes this seriously because he says that he will meet the church with the sword of his mouth. Just like Balaam was met with the sword in warning and ultimately met with the sword in judgment. In Revelation 19, we're told that Jesus will meet the rebellious nations with the sword of his mouth, with the sword of his law, his word, to judge their idolatry. But you know, he comes here first. He is active among the lampstands of the churches. And when he sees compromise with sin in his church, he will work to cut it and to separate it from his people. You are called to put off sin and pursue holiness and faithfulness. And and, and in in Christ, you have the holy heart necessary. The Holy Spirit gives you the strength to pursue that holiness and to pursue it successfully. When you ignore our holy, chosen, and beloved status and the strength that the Holy Spirit gives, you grieve God and he will come to judge. You and I dally with compromise when it is something that God takes seriously. The word of God, that double-edged sword from verse 12 and from chapter 1 is clear about what God expects from his people and from his church. And it doesn't change because of 2,000 years of history. God doesn't get with the times. God defines the times. And he defines holiness in the midst of it. And as in the other letters, there is a warning of judgment. There is also a promise for faithfulness. And brothers and sisters, these are glorious promises for faithfulness. The first promise is hidden manna. People have looked at Jewish legends about a container of manna that was kept in the ark and would be brought back out at the time that the Messiah showed up to give life to the people of God. The reality is a lot simpler than that, although it's related to that. The reality is found in John chapter 6. What is the hidden manna? 
John says this, or actually Jesus says this. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Just like the previous two churches, just like the next four churches, the first promise for repentance is eternal life. Eternal life with the Father. Eternal life in the presence of God. The riches of living eternity in the presence of God is the reward for faithfulness in the face of losing your livelihood. But Jesus also promises us not just the hidden manna, but he also promises us a a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. White in Revelation is, is the color of holiness, is the color of righteousness. The bride of Christ in Revelation 19 and 20 will be clothed in white, signifying their holy works, signifying their righteous works. But notice that it's Jesus who gives the white stone to those who repent. I don't have a holiness and righteousness of my own that justifies me before God and neither do you. And so Jesus gives you his righteousness. In Jewish In Jewish practice during this time, if you had been invited to a feast, you would be given a little rock, a little pebble. That would be proof that you had been invited. It would have been your ticket of admission into the feast. And so Jesus says, I'm going to give you the ticket of admission to the feast of God, that wedding feast of the Lamb that we see later on in the book of Revelation. And it's my righteousness and it's my holiness. What about that name written on it that only you know? Well, I can't tell you what that name is because number one, I'm not giving it to you and I don't know it yet. I don't know mine yet. But naming in the scripture, in the ancient Near East, in the the time of the first century, naming was a way to mark somebody as being under your authority and your protection. We look at Revelation 13 and we scratch our head. You know, what's the mark of the beast? Is it? You know, is it the microchips under the skin? Is it, is it credit cards or is it tattoos or who knows what it'll be? There's been at least 20 of them, I think, since I've been alive. Things that we have been told are the mark of the beast. But God tells us in the book of the Revelation what the mark means. In Revelation 7, God marks his people. And he marks them in order that they may be ultimately protected from the tribulations that come upon them in this world. The second death will not harm the children of God because they have been marked by him. They have been given a name by God. Satan counterfeits everything God does, so he marks his people too. But the authority that he has over them leads them to the second death. God's righteousness is given to you Jesus' righteousness is given to you as the ticket to admit of admission to the feast of the Lamb. And He marks you with a name that lets 
all the world, both physical and spiritual, know that you are safe and you are protected in him. Even the faithful church can be tempted by cultural weariness. Jesus says, whatever you give up on this earth will be repaid in bushels. Whatever social gatherings, whatever family that you have to give give up will be repaid in this world with tribulation and with glory in the world to come. And we see that working out here for the church in Pergamum. Brothers and sisters, the pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of faithfulness is a difficult pursuit and it feels like a long pursuit. Eugene Peterson even calls it a long obedience in the same direction. And at first, that pursuit of holiness, that pursuit of obedience can seem easy because it's exciting, it's new, and we have felt that that power of God taking our earthly affections and giving us new affections. But after a time, it gets difficult. You find yourself lonely because your friends don't understand you anymore. Your family looks at you a little bit weird and and they still invite you to family dinners, but they hope you won't bring up that Jesus stuff. And as you pursue holiness and you watch the world around you, you can't go to the places that you used to go. You can't date the people that you used to date. You just can't hang out with the people you used to hang out with. And Jesus says to the church in Pergamum, I know that it's difficult. I have planted you in that area because you are gifted to be faithful to me and to the community, to show my love to the world. Jesus is calling you, Jesus is calling me to walk the fine line of being in the world, but not of it. We cannot share the glorious news of God's gospel without being a part of the world. We have to shop at the grocery store. We have to be part of life. We have to walk that razor's edge of being in the world, but not compromising with the world. Where it tempts us to turn our backs on God, we have to say no, no matter what that costs us. Whenever the world tempts us with acceptance, and that's one of the first places it begins to tempt a church that is increasingly facing a hostile and indifferent culture. Whenever the world tempts us with acceptance, we need to be aware of the fact that the enemy is calling us to compromise our beliefs. We need to make sure that we don't compromise God's law in seeking to fill your desires. God promises an eternity of love and acceptance now and in the, and in the future. And that love and acceptance, that, that entry token to the new heavens and the new earth, that new name that protects us and the hidden manna, are the motivation for pursuing holiness now, even when it gets weary. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank you for these glorious words that you expect us to be holy, you expect us to be faithful, and when we fail, you will come to correct us and to draw us back to you. Lord, as our culture gets increasingly hostile and indifferent to the gospel, help us to maintain faithfulness in you and maintain our focus on our eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go this week, take this blessing upon you. The God of peace be with you all. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.